Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from my apartment in his attic. Miles Kampflassen has joined us. Uh, Miles, you're looking very good, uh, looking very rock star these days. Uh, you're wearing your freak, you're letting your freak flag fly, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate the, all the good work you do as well. Um, so much to discuss on the national and the local level. Miles, why don't we start with some local stuff, which also bleeds in the national. And we'll start with Rom. Three different people, Miles, have sent me the political uh, article or column, whatever it is. What do you, uh, three different people sent it to me, <laughs> where it basically explains that Rom is toxic. Toxic. Wow. Uh, I never thought that would be coming. Even Dems won't appoint Rom to a position of power. Let's talk about that a little bit, Miles. Sure. So if I can, uh, if you'll indulge me just to read a statement from that aforementioned article, um, the, you know, the top line news is that as many listeners probably have seen by now, the decision to appoint a transportation secretary has been made by Joe Biden's transition team. And they did go with a Midwest mayor, but um, a different one than the one who really wanted it, which, uh, which as we know was Rom. I mean, all of the reporting we've seen in recent weeks has proven a point that I know you've made in the past, which is that uh, Rahm Emanuel's greatest talent is uh, self-promotion and, he, you know, did everything he could to kind of put himself in the mix. Um, but as we saw, the small town mayor who uh, got the gig was Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, uh, not Rom. So how could that be? You know, Rom is a, uh, a national political figure. He has been for over a decade now. Obviously, he was, you know, the first pick, really. I think it was two a day or two after uh, the election in 2008 that Obama announced as uh, I think his first choice for his staff was was Rahm as chief of staff um, heralded you know there's books about him he was on the cover of Time magazine uh, all of his friends like Jonathan Alter writing all these glowing uh, profiles of Rahm Chicago Bull if you remember that thing well fast forward to uh, today and this is the Politico uh, playbook um, a quote from a senior Democrat who is advising the transition, uh, the Biden transition, says, uh, Rom, quote, Rom has former colleagues and friends who are involved and respect him, but no one is worth that sort of a headache. Uh, labor didn't want him at transportation. Civil rights groups didn't want him. Progressives didn't want him. There is simply no constituency for Rahm Emanuel at this point. 
so I think that about sums it up. Uh, what's going on is that, you know, a politician who staked his career on pursuing this centrist, third-way, neoliberal type of democratic politics, which eschewed uh, progressive policy and instead focused on uh, enshrining corporate power and having, you know, wealthy friends and avoiding uh, public or, you know, grassroots involvement in decision-making at all levels of government, his approach to politics has now been discredited. And that's something that, you know, I and many other progressive writers and, you know, activists, organizers have been uh, pushing for for a long time to see that that uh, approach to politics is discredited. And Rahm Emanuel is just one, you know, figurehead of all of that. But I think it is an extremely positive uh, step that uh, he is now, as you said, considered too toxic for, uh, the cabinet. And I think it, you know, even if he does still land some type of a gig as a ambassador or some low level, um, person in the administration, he's clearly not going to be an influential figure. He's not going to be in cabinet meetings, any of that. So, um, I think that it's something that folks on the left should be celebrating. And I think it's indicative of the movement um, in the broader Democratic Party and something that uh, Democrats, including the current Chicago mayor, should really pay attention to. All right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the current Chicago mayor and the lessons uh, that she may or may not have learned from uh, Rahm Emanuel's uh, time in office. And we've been talking at great length about the video of uh, police bursting into the home of Anjanette Young when uh, putting her in handcuffs while she's naked and the city's response to that, uh, fighting her in court and doing everything they can to repress uh, the video. And then when it finally emerges, the mayor claims she never saw it before. Boy, that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it, Miles? It, it, it certainly does. It's almost, you know, eerily familiar, if you remember. I mean, we never even heard Rom. Uh, until the end, claimed that he hadn't seen the video before of, of the Laquan McDonald shooting before. Um, it kind of became public news. Um, and it's widely assumed that that was a false statement. And, you know, emails indicate there was knowledge, certainly within Emanuel's office, of, uh, of the Laquan McDonald scandal long before it became public. And we're finding out very quickly that the initial statements of Lori Lightfoot's administration and her herself don't add up to the facts on the, on the ground. I mean, you see that in the fact you pointed it out. She had to walk back her initial claims that she knew nothing about this until she saw it in the media when in November of 2018 or 2019, she apparently was uh, informed of it. So it certainly sounds like uh, the type of behavior that does not, fit in with uh, uh, a politician who staked their career on accountability and questions and, and trying to provide transparency in office and bringing reform to the city of Chicago. These are the things that Mary Lori Lightfoot campaigned on. And now we're seeing the same exact approach to, you know, covering up incidences of police misconduct that we saw under Rahm Emanuel. And I will say, I mean, while I pointed out that I and other writers have really pushed to make sure that there is this narrative about Rahm Emanuel out there, that he is uh, a toxic political figure, uh, the work of doing of, of, of making him toxic was really done by organizers on the ground in Chicago and specifically um, black youth who fought tirelessly um, against the Emanuel administration over 
his role and their and the administration's role in covering up that tape, in you know overseeing uh, mass police abuse, and you know fighting for justice for for Black lives. I think that that was uh, instrumental in changing the narrative about around Rob Emanuel. And as I, you know, we're starting to see the beginnings of that again, just in the past few days over this um, scandal that, that Mayor Lightfoot is overseeing. I, I'm with you 100 percent on what you just said about Rahm. We'll go before we get to Lori. Uh, Rahm Emanuel was reelected in April of 2015 uh, over Jesus Chuy Garcia, and in large part because he got. Uh, he won the vote in black wards and he won the blo- vote in black wards uh, to a large part because uh, Barack Obama strongly endorsed him. The video emerged. So right. Rom had no quote unquote problem uh, with the civil rights community at that point. He was just reelected with black votes. November 2015, right before Thanksgiving, uh, a, a Cook County judge orders Rom to release the video. Okay, Rom didn't do it willingly. He ordered him to release the video, and the, the sense of betrayal was so palpable among black voters across the city that this was the guy they elected. And so, you know, Miles, I've been critical of Rom forever because, to me, he, well. He just represents the, some of the worst tendencies of Dems who think they're so smart and just want to just throw out all the values that the party supposedly believes in. But I don't think most people care about that except for lefties like me. But when you betray black voters who are responsible for you being in office in the first place, when you show so much contempt for the very voters that you owe your career to, that is the political kiss of death in the Democratic Party. And that it's I just it wasn't lefties like me opposing Rom that made Joe Biden back away. I think it was when he got the message loud and clear um, from black activists. You're absolutely correct that this guy had become a symbol of everything that was wrong with the Democrat Democratic Party's what uh, inconsistent treatment of its most loyal voters. You agree with me on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, it was the message was made loud and clear that not only was it an ideological opposition to everything that Rahm represents. I mean, just imagine a Department of Transportation under Rahm Emanuel, the same person who, you know, locked in the parking meter deal, the same one he made criticize he clearly was involved in maintaining the the parking meter deal just the an iconic public private partnership quote unquote that led to um you know basically stealing from the public coffers in order to enrich uh shareholders overseas i mean that has been just a symbol of how rom has approached governance uh, that in itself, I think, is a, a, a reason that he would be a very poor choice for a position like transportation secretary. But the real reason that um, I, that he was disqualified from being in the running, I think, was what you just said. It was, you know, civil rights leaders, black activists across the board, just repeating that, saying this is disqualifying. You would be a slap in the face to the very same voters that delivered this election uh, to you, President-elect Biden, um, you know, voters, especially 
during the Democratic primary, voters across black voters in the, in the South really uh, won the race for for Biden for him to then, you know, turn around and give a, a cozy job to somebody who oversaw, a, you know, a, a massive betrayal of black voters in his own city, Rahm Emanuel, um, through uh, through covering up the murder of a, a black teenager, vicious murder by the Chicago police. That just, you know, it, it, it couldn't stand. And so you're right that there was that that particular uh, scandal, I think, was his uh, the death knell for his future political career in many ways. I mean, obviously, it required that message to be repeated uh, in recent weeks as well. Uh, but I think that's a lesson, and it, and it goes to show that you you can walk into a city like Chicago and have you know too much fanfare and be considered this you know celebrity in Democratic Party politics, and walk out and be basically you know in the political wilderness, much like Rom is now. You know, you can have a perch as a pundit somewhere and work an investment bank, but you don't have your hands on the levers of power anymore. And for somebody who for anyone who wants to think of a political career long term, I mean, I don't think Rom would have won a third term even in, as Chicago mayor, but certainly on the national stage, his uh, credibility is sunk uh, very low. So, you know, whether it's Mayor Lightfoot or other people involved in the administration, I think long and hard about how you approach this scandal and think about how you want to come out on the other side, because hiding things up and being involved in cover ups, it doesn't end well. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the national uh, front. Uh, you were the one who alerted me to uh, this sh- behind-the-scenes showdown that took place yesterday uh, in Congress, AOC uh, versus Kathleen Rice for a position uh, on a Democratic committee, excuse me, a congressional committee. And it didn't go well for AOC. Talk about it a little bit. I've already talked about it on the show at the outset, but Miles, uh, give us the update. Yeah, and I, uh, and I appreciate that. It, it, not, it's not getting a lot of coverage to be honest because you know deliberations over committee assignments within the house of representatives is not usually front page news and you know understandably so but this is a particularly telling uh, example of how the establishment continues to punish the left wing of the party and any chance they get and even in unexpected ways i mean this was uh Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, representative of New York, was um, in the in the running for um, a committee assignment that she was widely expected to um, to get, and she ended up losing late last night to Long Island representative Kathleen Rice, as you mentioned, who is certainly far more centrist than her. She's essentially on the right flank of the party. She actually refused to support Nancy uh, Pelosi for speaker back in 2018, um, as you mentioned. Um, this is the, the the Energy and Commerce Committee is the uh, committee that they were running for the seat uh, in. And, you know, it's a, it's a powerful committee. It, it deals with issues around health care, around climate change, a lot of the things that are very important to both Ocasio-Cortez and the larger progressive movement. And it was seen as kind of a shoe in Jerry Nadler, who is, runs the New York delegation, was backing AOC. Um, and then kind of at the last minute, uh, uh, Kathleen Rice got involved. And all of these establishment Democrats, Democrats essentially like, you know, twisted the knife and AOC's back for um, 
revenge? I don't know, but including New York representative Hakeem Jeffries, who's you know kind of second in line behind Pelosi essentially for the speakership, came out and supported Rice against AOC. Um, it was it was a shocking uh, outcome essentially, and there was a, a number of other uh, cases of that because there were a, a number of these negotiations over committee assignments last night where progressives were punished essentially, and these are the same progressives not only that supported Nancy Pelosi against the the right wing of the party that's now being um, you know bestowed these plush committee assignments, uh, but also who worked tirelessly to get Joe Biden elected, you know, um, and getting people out to knock doors, to make calls. And the reward they get for all that work now is being um, being punished. So I think that it goes to show that there's, there's so many areas where the reins of power still um, are in the hands of establishment centrist Democrats, and they will punish even the lefties who support them uh, while rewarding those who have opposed them to, to apparently send a message. And I think it's a little absurd considering the fact that uh, we see where the energy in the Democratic Party is right now. Um, and uh, and I think that it's a lot of these establishment Democrats see that as a threat. Um, yeah. The, uh, the, the rationale that uh, the Democrats who voted against AOC gave was that, well, uh, she didn't support... Uh, Democrats who were being primaried from the left. She port- supported the challengers. Uh, and, uh, and so that in that regards, it's payback time. Uh, then, of course, as you pointed out, it's noted that Kathleen Rice uh, didn't even support Nancy Pelosi last time around. So uh, there's two uh, standards there. Do you think it's jealousy because AOC is such a prominent person? Uh, do you think it's ideology? Uh, they they despise uh, her left of center ideology, uh, or is it a combination of both? It's but uh, very bizarre. You have one of the most popular um, politicians among the left in the country, and what did, we we talked about this at the time. What did she get at the convention? Sixty seconds. Yeah. Republicans were getting <laughs> given prime speaking times. AOC. Uh, who's beloved by the left got 60 seconds uh, and uh, now she can't even get the committee position uh, that she, she wants. So what do you think it is? Is it ideological or just plain old envy? Yeah, they had to, they had to give those a lot of speaking time to John Kasich and Meg Whitman, you know, big, big time uh, parts of the democratic coalition, of course, had to be right. Republicans who now, you know, actually Meg Whitman, um, big time Republican funder and founder of Quibi, which people might know as this strange, you know, tech app that uh, immediately collapsed, got Lord only knows what it was supposed to do. But anyway, she's on the running apparent and she's an open registered Republican. She's in the running to be commerce secretary, apparently under under Biden. So uh, that's a whole other problem. But I, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's hard to pathologize. I don't know. I'm sure there is some level of um, of envy, of like hogging the spotlight. Also, she's just providing a very different approach to governance than what these um, establishment Democrats and liberals are used to, which is kind of going with the flow. I mean, you remember one of her first acts um, before she was even sworn in was being part of a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office. Um, but she wasn't doing a sit-in in order to like benefit herself. She was doing it to urge uh, dramatic and immediate action on climate change, an existential threat facing uh, much of you know humanity right now, certainly 
uh, AOC's constituents. So, um, yeah, I, I wonder myself how much it is really more about their, uh, their, anger towards how she's approaching the office of a uh, house representative, which is, you know, much more kind of combative than, than has been the, the case for a long time. And one of the people who was involved in this, in, in determining this uh, committee, the committee seating was Henry Quaylar, who's probably the most right-wing Democrat in Congress now that Lipinski has been unseated by Marie Newman. And he's down in Texas, and he was challenged from his left by Jessica Cisneros this last time around, and she came very close to beating him. Um, He's one of the biggest beneficiaries of fossil fuel money um, in Congress and a big-time ally of you know, fossil fuel industry. Uh, so yeah, I think he was angry at AOC for, you know, supporting his, his challenger that go around, but you'll remember even Nancy Pelosi backed Joe Kennedy, who was doing a primary challenge to Ed Markey in mm-hmm. uh, Massachusetts for Senate. So it's not like, you know, these other Democrats hands are clean when it comes to getting involved in primary campaigns. They're just the ones that are backing the centrist versus the left. So in that way, I think it is, more about ideology than just uh, norms or practice, because they're more than happy to, you know, put their hands on the scale when it comes to trying to oust who they see as, you know, more left-leaning members of Congress. Um, They're only mad when it's the left doing the agitation. Yeah, and uh, this gets into the theme that I began with, uh, which is no love for lefties, as I said. And lefties are like, I think I mentioned to you this, lefties are like the third rail. Uh, This is what I find so frustrating because the values that people on the left espouse are generally the values of the Democratic Party and they're the ones that the Democrats will champion at a Democratic convention, let's say, when they show images of FDR or Eleanor Roosevelt or JFK or even LBJ. They'll forget the Vietnam War and talk about uh, his civil rights uh, uh, legislation. And so... These are the 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 uh, values they champion, just like in sort of the general values. But when it comes to people who actually articulate those values, they're treated as though they're uh, not welcome. So, like Bernie Sanders, you know, <laughs> Bernie. Well, he's not literally a Democrat, but he's he's like a persona non grata, and it's it's like. Like people like you, Miles, it's like you guys have been, you're embarrassing us. Could you not be so vociferous in your articulation of these democratic values? Uh, could you lower your rhetoric? You know, it's it's not just you. I'm just teasing you because you're here, but it's Carlos Ramirez Rosa is another one. And uh, just Byron Cisha Lopez, uh, another one that was just on the show yesterday. It's like any time of left to center person really pushes hard on left of center issues that are supposedly really important to the Democrats, the Democrats almost get embarrassed. And it's like, well, could you just not be so loud about this? Could you just kind of go away? Do you get that feeling sometimes? Yeah, I think that that kind of sums up what the uh, narrative coming out of the Democratic establishment has been since the election. And I think that that's going to be more and more part of our 
um, politics, or at least our media discourse, is this attempt to stifle and you know silence uh, progressive critics, both of the Obama or of the Biden administration, and just of the Democratic Party in general, and say you know you're you're are you, do you realize we have to you know hold together this coalition and we've got to negotiate with Republicans and you're making too much noise, all of this uh, you know kind of finger wagging. Uh, and we've, we saw it throughout the campaign. I mean, if you remember, Biden was <laughs> doing things like telling when he was criticized over his record on immigration, he said, go vote for Trump. You know, he, he was hectoring people. So I'm hopeful that, you know, by having other voices in the room, uh, that there will be some, you know, that won't be the reigning narrative coming out of the Biden administration itself, that there will be more of a openness to uh, advancing some progressive policies, but I think for people who are, you know, advocates and organizers and that do work around uh, advancing progressive policy, you got to be adversarial with the democratic establishment because that's how you get things done. Being trying to, you know, fashion as a junior partner or something in this coalition, look what happens. You get, you know, your committee, uh, assignment, uh, withheld from you because they want to punish you. So you might as well, you know, fight uh, to, I, I don't think that means just blow everything up, but you've got to um, agitate. And if you look throughout history I and mean, you just mentioned like LBJ, for example, people will credit LBJ's kind of legislative uh, prowess as how he got through Medicare and Medicaid, for example. But there was, you know, years of agitation around that from grassroots groups that were fighting to get uh, health care for seniors and poor people. That's how Medicare and Medicaid got passed in 1965. Just look back at the Obama administration. Immigration advocate, uh, activists were not, you know, holding hands with Obama. They were fighting him tooth and nail and protesting and sitting in and going on hunger strikes. And that's how they eventually won things like DACA and, you know, reduced deportations. Same thing on, you know, gay rights. When Obama came into office, he had uh, Pastor Rick Warren, a homophobe, give the invocation at his inauguration. And, you know, he went from that to repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell and um, refusing to defend DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act in court. Those things were won through agitation from the outside, not from, you know, trying to be friends with the establishment. So I think it's just, it's a lesson of what's to come in the, in the Biden era. I think we're going to see a lot more of it. And I think it's just, I think the left has learned a lot since 2008 and is going to be prepared. Yes, uh, that fight we'll be talking about uh, in the coming year, the uh, left trying to push Joe Biden to do the right thing. Uh, do you see any signs from his uh, cabinet selections that encourage you uh, early on? You mentioned Buddha Judge. You're encouraged that it didn't pick Rahm. Uh, <laughs> so I guess that's an encouragement. But any actual selections that encourage you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, yesterday was a big day because uh, uh, the Biden team selected uh, Deb Holland, who was a representative from New Mexico. She's the first uh, Native American woman uh, ever to be in the United States Congress. She won in 2018. She ran on Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, marijuana legalization. She's a progressive, right? And she uh, had um, been under discussion to run the interior department. There was all kind of hemming and hawing because uh, Pelosi didn't want to, you know, hurt her majority in the house. And so there was, she was trying to convince uh, 
I don't know, there was a lot of consternation over whether to pick another representative from Congress. But yesterday she was appointed or, you know, nominated by Biden to be the interior secretary, which is huge. You know, that could they control one fifth of the land of the United States that, you know, is, is overseen by the interior department and they can make massive changes, especially when it comes to issues of tribal sovereignty, but also on things like climate change. So I am very encouraged by that. Um, um, uh, Baressa, who's who got chosen, uh, Becerra, I'm sorry, who got chosen for Health and Human Services, mm-hmm. uh, also is a longtime Medicare for All supporter himself. Um, he, you know, doesn't have tons of history in uh, doing uh, healthcare administration, but um, I think that that he, there's a lot he could do with the that office, and certainly to stop the uh, the the, the from being involved in fighting against single payer activity on the state level. That's one thing that was really a problem, has been a problem in the past is when states try to do their own single payer plans, the federal government gets involved and tries to stop it. So this is one area where we could see real movement soon on the state level with having um, Becerra in office. And then um, I'd say Marsha Fudge, she is a progressive. She was uh, hoping to get appointed as agriculture secretary and Biden handed that to Tom Vilsack, somebody who's uh, long time been in bed with the agricultural industry, which is troubling. But as kind of a consolation, they put her in charge of the housing and urban development um, uh, part of the administration. So she is going to be the HUD secretary, uh, uh, assuming she gets approved. And she's also been largely progressive. So there are some areas where there has been um, some positive picks. But that said, there's also plenty of folks from the war making industry, from Wall Street, you know, from the same revolving door of corporate America as we would expect. Yeah. Uh, and so much of what um, Joe Biden's agenda uh, will be sh- whether it gets to be shaped by what happens in Georgia. Have any sense those two uh, those two Senate races? I guess the next time you come on the show, they will have been decided. January fifth is the election. Uh, you have any uh, gut feeling about which way those elections are going to go? Well, the gut feeling is not great considering it's Georgia, and uh, you know if you look at their history of runoff elections and just their history of electing senators, it has not been very good for Democrats. So uh, that is a major challenge. I think I think specifically trying to unseat David Perdue, who has been in the office for a while, um, is going to be a real challenge. And John Ossoff has already you know lost a high-profile race there, but. Um, I'm encouraged because, you know, you brought up earlier, um, Nancy, them trying to say that uh, Ossoff was like Nancy Pelosi or something because he was so far left. Hmm. Um, well, look at what's happening now. It, what the the candidates in Georgia are talking about, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, they're sounding like lefties themselves. They're saying send people checks. They're saying, you know, we need to we need coronavirus relief. We need aid for state and local governments. We need, you know, to get all this stuff done. While meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi is kind of selling out some of those ideas in her negotiations around this. Uh, compromise COVID bill. So it's actually Ossoff and Warnock that are, you know, running to the left, but they're running to the left in a way that says we need to, you know, pay everybody 15 bucks an hour. We need to, you know, get healthcare to everybody. It's much more, they're running a much more progressive campaign than I would have expected, but it makes sense because I think it's going to be a base election. It's all going to come down to turnout. We've seen very high turnout so far. We don't know, you know, 
which way that's going. If those are angry MAGA people who are trying to stop the steal through voting for, you know, the, the Republicans or, or, and maybe writing in Trump for all we know is what they've been told to do. <laughs> uh, or, if it's, or if it's Democrats, I mean, it could be an overwhelming show of democratic force. I will say, you know, I'm, I'm uh, editing an article right now actually about some of the grassroots groups in Georgia that are doing, um, outreach there and they're very encouraged by the um, type of response that they're seeing um, and these are groups that are you know been on the ground in Georgia for a long time um, so that is heartening but there you know we, we just we don't know I mean it's it's such a consequential election of which you remember how much polling there was you know around the general election yeah. we have a dearth of it now compared to that for something that holds so much consequence I mean Biden's entire agenda kind of rides on um, on Ossoff and Warnock winning so definitely going to be watching that one very closely and I will say I mean I admitted it about Michigan as well I've been making calls to Georgia you know anybody can do that I think that that's a great way to you know get involved if you're feeling you know stuck and inactive this holiday season um, there are plenty of opportunities to plug in and try to uh, motivate voters in, in the great state of Georgia uh, so what's the response when you talk to Georgians um, I mean, I mainly right now, I think that there's 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 a couple focuses. One is deep canvassing, which is what groups like um, People's Action, uh, which has an affiliate there, um, Song Power in uh, Georgia, they're working with kind of a people of color LGBT group. And they're doing kind of deep canvassing, which is talking to people about their issues and trying to get them um, on board with, uh, you know, people that might not always vote. Then there's, you know, just get out the vote, you know, operations, which is kind of what it's transitioning into now because it's getting so close to the election. And that has been positive and that people are, you know, if they're Democrats and they haven't voted yet and you're telling them to, you know, they need to go vote again. Sometimes it's just kind of a reminder. Um, I have not been doing persuasion calls myself, so I haven't heard as much, you know, from the, from the other side, but I can tell you that there's certainly plenty of, uh, Republican support in yeah. Georgia for, for, for Leffler and Purdue, and they're going full red scare. You know, the, all of the talking points they have is that this is the radical socialist agenda that they want to, you know, um, uh, ruin your freedom with uh, by by instituting this takeover or what have you, and uh, yeah, that's they're they're just going pure scare tactics because they they can't run on anything. And Purdue and Leffler, as we know, um, are getting hammered over both doing basically insider trading and benefiting from their knowledge of the COVID crisis before it hit by selling their stocks and making an insane amount of money. So they're both very, very flawed candidates. So their whole approach has been um, to uh, to try to uh, tarnish the reputation of Ossoff and Warnock. But I will say one thing, one last thing here on this is that uh, – what is kind of encouraging is how much pressure is now on Mitch McConnell to oh, yeah. COVID deal because he said, and he's very clear about it. I mean, one thing you could say for Mitch McConnell, he's pretty politically honest um, about his intentions. He said the reason he's doing this is because their Loeffler and Purdue are getting killed in Georgia right now because there's no more COVID release yeah. relief. If you, you know, if you uh, punish and starve your, uh, your citizens, you're gonna, people are going to be angry, you know, and Loeffler and Purdue are not, right now the incumbents. They are the ones that represent what's happening in Washington. So um, yeah, I think Mc the fact McConnell is feeling the pressure goes to show they're pretty uh, worried about it. Yeah, no, they, um, the Republicans, 
a very inconsistent uh collection of uh, politicians whose unifying theme uh, is essentially the same old uh, red baiting that's been going on since like the 1920s in this country. Uh, And so I talked about this a lot yesterday, Miles. I'm watching that uh, the negotiations, if you can call them that, between the Republicans and the Democrat over uh, stimulus relief. And the sticking point is whether there will be relief for states and cities. And the Republicans are adamant they don't want relief for states and cities. And I'm, I'm just baffled by this because there are Republican governors of states that could use that assistance. There are Republican downtown property interests you know, who support Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who could use that relief. You can't, I mean, there are Republican, there's, there's, they are stakeholders in all this. They won't challenge, they won't use their clout to force the Mitch McConnells of the world to bend on that issue. And I just find it such a baffling, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a form of anarchy or nihilism on the part of, of the Republicans you know, they're they're willing to let their states and cities go down the tubes uh, rather than give on this issue. The, the, like, I don't know what principle they're invoking on this one other than just blind hatred for blue states or cities. Um, but it is baffling. And uh, you're right that somehow other Mitch McConnell has decided that they have to send out individual checks to human beings. OK, in order to win in Georgia. But they are not repeat, not going to send out money to what? I don't know, the city of Atlanta or Cobb County or, you, you know, any governmental entity in a state like uh, Georgia that needs money to pay its basic obligations because the revenue is not coming in because we're in the middle of this economic uh, shutdown. So very strange position the Republican Party has locked itself yeah. into. I mean, what did what did Alfred say in Batman Begins of uh, uh, of the Joker? Some men just want to watch the world burn. I think, and, so, and I think that there, you know, you, you saw this before with the Medicaid expansion under Obama, yeah. right? Like that's something that would have helped all these Republican governors. It would have taken so much stress off of their healthcare systems, and it would have improved the lives of their constituents. And yet. Um, many Republican governors decided to reject that funding, just say no to money from the government to fund Medicaid expansion in their states because they were opposed to this idea of the government actually helping (laughs) its citizens, you know? And I think that that is the same internal logic that is motivating this current um, refusal to provide um, state and local aid. The, uh, the rub of it is that, you know, who's going to suffer from it. Um, It's, police and fire departments, you know, they're the ones that are getting this money from, um, from, from local budgets, education systems, public transit, all of these are going to suffer. Um, and from what I understand, the current status of negotiations, they've already taken that out of the bill. You know, they are not even, the Republicans are, took it out. So they're not even negotiating over state and local aid at this point. The thing that is the real sticking point at this, uh, at this point, and this might change, you know, within the day, but mm-hmm. Um, it was an effort being led by uh, Toomey in the Senate, a Republican, to try to sabotage any ability of the Biden administration to use 
um, funding from the Federal Reserve to prop yeah. up the economy. So that is their biggest. They want to just, you know, make sure the Biden administration is stillborn, that it can accomplish nothing, um, which is the same thing they did when Obama came into office. So that's their real sticking point. They've already said they're not going to fund um, state or local governments. So, um, so yeah, it doesn't look good in terms of what's going to come out of this um, package. They also want to restrict the unemployment benefits. Um, and when it comes to the checks, I think, you know, I, I, McConnell was opposed to the checks. So maybe he turned his, you know, uh, feelings because of what's going on in Georgia. It could also be because Trump tried to blow up the negotiations last night by saying he wants to send $2,000 to everybody, um, yeah. which would be great. But then again, <laughs> does all kinds of shit so who knows uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's that but the real reason that there's money there's checks in the package which is a great thing i mean i'm very excited to get some money from the government but i you need it way less than so many people that are you know really suffering right now uh, not that i'm paid super well but you know uh, uh and even six hundred dollars can go a long way and the, the reason that's in the bill right now is because of bernie sanders and because he just nonstop, you know, has been, has been pushing this. And of, co- of course, his colleagues in the house, like Pramila Jayapal and AOC and Ilhan Omar um, and Rashida Tlaib were, you know, fighting endlessly to include some type of direct cash payments for struggling Americans in there. So I think it's very good that they've included that, but there's all these other poison pills that are, that are in that bill right now. Yeah. All right. Miles Conflesson, uh, thank you for anything, any articles from in these times that you want people to know about before we let you go? Um, well, uh, if you go to any times right now, you'll see a, a really good article by Max Sawicki that, uh, that I edited and published. He's a former, uh, economist at the, um, economic policy Institute and writer. And it's all about the real need for Joe Biden to, um, to go crazy on stimulus spending as soon as he gets in there because it's, you know, the kind of jumpstart our economy needs. Um, so definitely, uh, check that out. And, um, I am going to be doing my, uh, NBA fantasy draft tonight. So if anybody wants to, you know, send me some good vibes for, for getting some good picks, uh, the NBA season is starting up in just like a few days at this point. So, you know, vaccine is here. The NBA is here. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's good days ahead. All right. Uh, so we'll leave with that. My beloved Bulls start uh, Tuesday, December 22nd. I'm very excited. And um, I'm predicting, of course, uh, as I do every year, that the Bulls will be the NBA champs. Um, you know, and then and I've, I'm offering uh, you and Dennis, I'm going to be reserving you spots uh, in Grand Park because the vaccine will be there. When we have the championship parade and celebration, uh, it'll be held in uh, Grand Park. And I'm saving spots uh, for you and Dennis. Uh, so do you share my enthusiasm for my beloved Chicago Bulls uh, or do you think they're just going to be uh, another disastrous year? Oh, I think this is going to be great. I mean, I, uh, I think I mentioned it before, but I have even more faith in Billy Donovan's Bulls than I do in Joe Biden's uh, <laughs> To say, I think that he's a really is a great steward, and even though he's not working with the best, you know, he's not he doesn't have the best hand dealt to him. I think he's going to make the most of it. That's something I do wish for uh, uh, President Elect Biden as well. But I just think that uh, Billy Donovan has shown from his uh, time in Oklahoma City, he can really uh, make a team at least show some effort. I think it's going to be a year of you know figuring out what works and what doesn't um, without Jim Boyle. 
Jalen around. And we've preseason has already shown some real positive uh, signs. Patrick Williams, the rookie, has giant uh, Kawhi Leonard-like hands and has been playing uh, pretty great. And I think Zach Levine and Kobe White are going to have big years. So yeah, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited by Patrick Williams. And so is Dennis. Dennis got a Patrick Williams tattoo uh, that people don't know about. P-Dub, P-Dub. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, Miles, uh, enjoy the bull season and, uh, have a great holiday season. And we'll be talking to you, uh, next year. All right. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you both. Uh, I want to thank Miles Conflesson, uh, from in these times, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, probably Joe Walton, Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. And it's Miles Conflesson, Lori Lightfoot. And Mitch McConnell will tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Science is back, baby. No collusion. Face coverage. No collusion. Face coverage. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Science is back, baby. No collusion. Face coverage. How did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book? Good question there. Good question. No collusion. Face coverage. How did you... How did you, how did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book? Good question, Mayor. Good question.